0: Well, if you've been around this fall, you've noticed that uh, we've been going through the book of Proverbs. We've been going through a series on the book of Proverbs, and it's been a lot of fun. I know like, I've been like, super uh, like challenged by Proverbs myself. And Last week, John and Sarah preached sort of like a tandem sermon, where they talked about the power of speech, that speech has the power to bring death, and speech has the power to bring life. And uh, we're on our second-to-last message from this series, and today I'm going to be talking about the topic of pride and humility. Now, there's a long tradition in Christianity of understanding pride to be the root of all sin. Pride cometh before the fall, as the old saying goes. C.S. Lewis writes that according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As Sarah said, you can't look down on other people and look up at God at the same time. Andrew Murray, um, the classic devotional writer, puts it a similar way. He says that humility is the root of every virtue. And likewise, that pride or the loss of this humility is the root of every sin and evil. Now, I wonder this morning if you agree with these folks that pride is the root of every sin and evil. Or when somebody says, hey, what's the worst sin? If a whole bunch of other things would sort of immediately come to your mind, like long before pride does. Do these Christian teachers get it right? And I think the answer, according to the book of Proverbs, is yes. Pride and humility are that central to God. They're that foundational to our understanding of the Bible. They're that central to the whole of Christian life. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now this is the verse where we originally got this shorthand phrase, Pride cometh before the fall. And in truth... I do think that the author of Proverbs here is intending to give an echo back of the original fall, the fall of man in the garden. So I want to start there today. Please take out a pew Bible and turn with me to Genesis 3. It's right near the beginning. It's the third chapter in the Bible, Genesis 3. And I want to contend to you that the story of the fall of man is really a story about pride. So starting at verse 1, it says, Now the serpent, who we learn later is the devil, was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, here the serpent's actually bending the truth, because God actually said that they could eat from every tree. And he'd given them every tree for food, for their enjoyment, and the beauty of it, for their eyes, and all this sort of stuff. Everyone but one. (laughs) That's it. So you see he's kind of twisting things here, but let's continue on. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't actually say that part, but let's read on. She says, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent, who Jesus calls the father of lies later on, said to the woman, You will not surely die. And, and here I think the passage really zooms in on the moment of temptation for the fall of man. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the moment of temptation, brothers and sisters. And this this issue, what's at the heart of temptation, is pride. What's the devil appealing? what's, What's the devil using to try to appeal to Adam and Eve? Their pride, our pride, the temptation to be like God. Now, some have mistakenly thought that the fall of man had something to do with sexual sin. Maybe because of popular portrayals in art. But that's simply not the case. It's true that as a result of the fall, Adam and Eve um, feel a sense of shame over their nakedness and they seek to cover themselves up. But that was the result of the fall, not the cause. And in fact, if you flip back just to Genesis chapter 2, you find that sex actually had a good start, complete with poetry, marriage, a one flesh union. And as it says in Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked naked. And we're not ashamed. They we're not ashamed. So it's folly to go looking for the cause of original sin in our sexuality because sex was originally a good gift from a good creator. The fall occurred when we grasped for that which was not a gift. To be like God. Or at least to be our own God to be the maker of our own rules, the master of our own destinies, the definer of our own identities. In a word, pride. Though we were made to be glorious and beautiful creatures, we subverted God's rightful role and grasped for the forbidden fruit of creator status. Isaiah put it this way, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. So we all, like sheep, have sought to act as if we're our own shepherd. I, hold an, I heard an old Baptist preacher say one time that the number one hit song in hell is not Highway to Hell by ACDC.
1: <laughs>
0: it's, I did it my way. the devil is usually much more cunning than we expect. Some some people are fans of that song. And it's it's actually so funny because whenever that song is played at a wedding or someplace, it's it's almost like a religious experience people are having. It's like, my way. Oh, praise Jesus for for my way. So the root of the fall of man is the same root as the expulsion of the devil from heaven. Pride. Pride. He used the same trick. Proverbs 16.5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's strong language. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. And so Adam and Eve are punished. Genesis 3.24 says that God drove out the man and at the east of Eden... He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So this this is the sad state of man after the fall. Enmity with God, enmity with one another, shame over their sexuality, cut off from the source of eternal life. And the enemy of their souls, the devil, is still at large, but there's a great promise in this story that's into that in verse 15. Some, some theologians call it the proto gospel. And it gives this promise that one of Eve's offspring would eventually come and trample the head of the serpent, as our liturgy puts it during the Eucharist, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. So, this is the promise of the Messiah, our Savior Jesus. But here's the weird thing. He triumphs in a way that no one expected, especially not the devil, because Jesus triumphed over the devil by humility. Pride is the ethic of the devil, just as humility is the ethic of Christ. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But first I want to allow Proverbs to clear up some misunderstandings that we have about humility. Please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. It's on page 528 of your Pew Bible. And this is a very famous passage. So if you've heard it before, um, try to listen, listen with fresh ears. He who has ears, let him hear. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So this is one of those passages that like, we put on like, a Christian plaque and nice cursive letters with like a flowery field in the background and we stick it on our wall. But we might not pay close enough attention to it. Um, because I think if we read this passage well, we'd notice that it corrects two common misunderstandings about humility. The first misunderstanding is that humility is a kind of like a virtuous self-deception. In other words, we we kind of think of humility as like a white lie um, where we we sort of make believe we're less than we are or that we're more sinful than we are or that we know less than we do. And if we're honest, we know that none of this humility stuff is really true. In fact, we think we're pretty awesome. But we believe it's sort of healthy to talk in that sort of way. You know, it's good manners. But in truth, Humility is not rooted in a lie. It's rooted in reality, in what is really so. And true humility is not rooted in a low view of oneself, but in a high view of God, and in a sober view of oneself. Back in the day, I was discipling this college student, um, who got to a point, uh, he had been struggling with pornography and lust for many years, he got to a point where he was finally free from it. From it. He was walking in freedom for several months, and he came to me, and he said, um, hey, Taylor, like, I don't know what to do, because I don't have this sin in my life, and, and I just don't see any other sin in my life. <laughs> and, 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 he, and he said, I, I, and he's like, and I'm worried about that, because I know that sounds really prideful, and I know there's sin there, but it's just kind of weird, I just don't see it, you know? And, uh, and, um, I mean, it sounds kind of strange, but you, you might have had that experience, too. If you've been delivered of something that was sort of the focus of your spiritual life for a while, and you're like, okay, the Lord delivered me from alcoholism. The Lord delivered me from this. He delivered me from that. Like, I just feel like, okay, have I arrived? What's going on here? <laughs> and, um, and so my counsel to this student um, was to shift his focus away from himself, mm-hmm. And to stop taking his own spiritual and moral temperature and to focus the eyes of his heart on the Lord. Because it's the holiness and purity of God, not the holiness and purity of our own self-assessment, that shines light into our lives. Does that make sense? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It, It wasn't until the Apostle Peter, remember he was a fisherman, it wasn't until he realized who Jesus really was that he was like, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Right? It was when, when there was a revelation of who God was that he saw he needed to be cleansed. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And friends, there's a very practical and intelligent reason for this, which is that the Lord is infinitely trustworthy in our own understandings, our finite and flawed. That's just the truth. That's what really is. And the interesting thing is that the Hebrew word translated here as understanding is almost always used, it's almost always spoken of in a positive way in the Bible, as a good thing to be desired. But here it's used negatively as a warning. Why? Why? Because there's a difference between seeking understanding, which is a good thing, And leaning, putting the weight of our understanding, putting the weight of our trust on our own understanding, as if our own mind has become the standard, as if our own conscience has become the standard, as if our own sense of what's proper has become the standard. So if we're not careful, our current level of understanding can easily become sinful hubris which is incompatible with trust in Yahweh. Listen, brothers and sisters, when the word of God seems troubling or impractical and you're tempted to lie as a way of getting ahead or getting out of something or to cheat on your taxes or to date some cute boy that you know doesn't love Jesus, Or to indulge in some hidden act of lust because the desire seems so natural. Or to think that Jesus' call to forgive others can't apply in your situation. Then you're leaning on your own understanding. It may not be easy to follow God's way, but it's dang near impossible if you think your way is right and God must be mistaken in your situation. Proverbs warns us, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If God says, wait, do you really think you know more than him? Be not wise in your own eyes. If you're struggling with your identity in some way, do you really think you know yourself better than God? Be not wise in your own eyes. If God says to love your enemies, do you really think that doesn't apply to the enemies of our nation? Be not wise in your own eyes. How about this one? If you're a student of the sciences, do you think that science will ever progress past the knowledge of God? Never. It's impossible. He made this stuff. He knows this stuff. Our knowledge will always be flawed and partial whereas God's knowledge is perfect and complete. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so then humility is not a matter of pretending that we're dumber than we are. It's simply acknowledging with our hearts and minds what <laughs> a reality that is manifestly true which is that God sets the standard. And here's the thing. God is out for your good, guys. Every one of you. Even if I haven't met you, I know God is out for your good. He cares for us and knows how to love us better than we could love ourselves. He knows how to shepherd us better than we as sheep can shepherd ourselves. Jeremiah 29:11, great promise. Some of you probably haven't memorized For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And that brings me to a second misunderstanding about humility, which is that I think we all in the back of our hearts sort of fear that humility is somehow unhealthy for us. It's bad for our self-image. We fear God wants us to make, like wants us to sort of go through our earthly life groveling. Now, is that what God has planned for you? But I think true humility has more to do with being willing to laugh at yourself Mm -hmm. than it does with beating yourself up. It has more to do with self-forgetfulness and being a good listener of uh, to, to others than being constantly focused on your own flaws. It has more to do with being willing to bow before heaven than it does groveling all the days on on the earth. Proverbs 3.8 says that the way of humility will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That people um, who are humble have a sense of health about them. You know that. When you're around somebody who's humble... They have a sense of health about them. They don't insist on their own way. They can admit when they're wrong because they're not defending their own self-image, tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. They can go about their work with a quiet tenacity for the sake of God's glory, not their own gain. Because humility brings with it its own sense of well-being that goes beyond material considerations. Proverbs 16, 9 It almost reads like one of Jesus' beatitudes. It says, It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Isn't that striking? Better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil among the proud. Why would this be the case unless humility has a sort of intrinsic value to it, an intrinsic blessedness to it that goes beyond circumstance? In contrast, the way of pride, of constantly building up and guarding our own ego, might feel good in the moment, but it's ultimately unhealthy. And it's embarrassing when we slip into that. It doesn't sit well with us later on, like eating a dinner of Doritos. (laughs) In fact, Proverbs 25, 27 says, "...it is not good to eat much honey." nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Now, do you realize, speaking of humility, that Jesus was never not misunderstood in his earthly life? Do you realize that? I mean, if if you feel like you're constantly misunderstood, you're in the best of company. John 1 says, He came to that which was his own, to the world that he had made, to his own people, and it says his own did not receive him. Can you imagine the humility of our Savior Christ? He didn't need the world to tell him who he was because the Father had already told him. I once heard a preacher define humility in this way. Whew, I'm almost scared to say this. This is stuck with me. <laughs> humility is trusting God and not insisting from him that we receive better treatment on earth than Jesus received. Humility is trusting God and not insisting from him that we receive better treatment on earth than Jesus received. I'm going to pray for better treatment on earth, and I'm going to hope for it, and I can ask for it. But are we willing to take up our cross and follow our Savior? And if we insist on better treatment than Jesus received, there's always going to be a point where Jesus is going to go this way, and we're going to say, God can't be asking you to go that way. Let me take a few moments to summarize before we draw to a close. We've been talking today out of Proverbs about pride and humility. Sarah began by saying, you can't look down at people and also look up at God at the same time. And I began by talking about pride as the fundamental sin. The anti-God state of mind that according to Proverbs, pride cometh before the fall indeed. And we let the scriptures correct two common misunderstandings about humility. Number one, that humility is not a matter of fooling ourselves. But instead, a matter of seeing clearly. And number two, that humility is actually healthy. It's not a matter of beating ourselves down, but a matter of being less and less concerned with ourselves and our egos. Now, I think we can all admit that the Spirit's work of sanctifying us from pride and sort of infusing us with the humility of Christ will never be finished this side of glory. Amen? Mm -hmm. In fact, if there's one thing, one prayer request, you want to know how to pray for John and I, all the days of our ministry, that the Lord would protect us from pride. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Pride cometh before the fall, guys. We're in danger, Jesus would say, even more danger because we're teachers, because we're leaders in the church. But despite these warnings, we need not lose heart. God is at work in our lives. And I'd like to end our discussion of pride and humility this morning on a note of hope by turning our attention to Christ Because if it's true to say that we were damned by the pride of man, it's also true to say that we have been saved by the humility of God. Andrew Murray put it this way. He says, Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness. This is the first advent, brothers and sisters, to win and serve and save us. As the love and condescension of God makes him the benefactor and helper and servant of all, so Jesus, of necessity, was the incarnate humility. And so he is still in the midst of the throne, the meek and lowly, Lamb of God. That's the eternal picture we get of Jesus in the book of Revelation. So Christ, you could think of him as the eternal humility of God projected onto the landscape of human history. That's what it looks like. That's what God's character looks like. If you came to equip to heal, you'll remember that I I pointed out this point that it says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus... Even though he was in very nature, God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Right? Becoming the servant of all, dying for all. That's what Philippians 2, 5-11 talks about. And so, in essence, if you think about it, Jesus reversed the curse. He did the exact opposite thing that we did during the fall, because we, even though we were creatures, grasped for creator status. And he... Being in himself, the very nature of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but became nothing. Why? Why? For you. For your salvation. To fulfill the promise that we heard in Genesis chapter 3, that one of the offspring would come and trample hell and Satan under his feet in a most unexpected way by his humility By his condescension to take on flesh, to come as a servant, to be misunderstood and be mistreated by his own creation, to die the death he didn't deserve. The way to the Garden of Eden has been swung back open to us. We can return to the Garden. In humility, be reconciled to God. In love, be reconciled to one another. We were barred from the tree of life because of the pride of man, but because of the humility of God, there's a new tree of life. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross to forgive you, to cleanse you of your sins? That's the way to eternal life. The cross has become the tree of life. And that word of the cross, it's hard to hear. It's, Paul says it's an affront to our pride. It's the antidote to our pride because if we believe that Jesus has come to heal us, then we believe we need healing. If we believe Jesus has come in that you know, manifestly beautiful, full expression of humility, then we believe he's in that way because we've rebelled in our pride. When I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Will you trust in the humble salvation of Christ this morning? Will you allow him to crucify your pride? Allow him to trample hell and Satan under his feet in your life. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.